I think I think it's funny that the things that you're talking about there are uh, just how business is done nowadays. And those are relics of the past where when you say, I don't have billable hours in the day to do that kind of work, uh, hmm. to do the kind of work that makes a business relevant in today's age is <laughs> yeah. interesting to me. It's like saying that we don't have hours in the day to do mentoring. Welcome to the Archispeak Podcast, the podcast for architects by architects, where we discuss all things about architecture. I'm Neil Pan. Each episode, Evan Troxel, Cormac Phelan, and me invite you in on the conversation as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture, you're still in school, or you've been around the block more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we gather around the water cooler and talk about this profession we call architecture. It's time for some Archispeak. Welcome to episode 107 of the Archispeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxel. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And this episode of Arcaspeak is sponsored by Arcat. Check out all the features they offer over at arcat.com. And starting off this week, Cormac has a guest to introduce. So we'll get into it a little bit later about what the topic is today. But just a little hint, we're going to be talking about millennials. So we wanted to bring on our perennial millennial, Laura Teagarden. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm not so certain, I guess, by certain definitions i fall into the millennial category but i'm on the older on the cusp. cusp yeah yeah you might be welcome to the show and uh we wanted to uh maybe have you uh explain a little bit about yourself who you are what you're doing uh so i am a young architect out of indianapolis indiana born and raised moved around the country after grad school and wound my way back here. I work at Ratio Architects in downtown Indy, which is where our headquarters is, but we have um, three other, four other locations. And But I also own my own business, L Squared Design, and that's where kind of the ARE sketches falls under that umbrella. Um, awesome. And what is that? Yeah. For those that don't know. Yes, that is a visual study guide. It Well, it started out as sketches, but it's turned into... So far, two published visual study guides, um, and there's a weekly newsletter associated with it. But it's all of the content, uh, the written content for the ARE turned into sketch form. So paragraph at a time, the content is turned into something visual to uh, hopefully help people recall the information better. I had a friend who had failed uh, PPP a couple times and passed along your book to him, and he passed it. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Yeah, that's cool. And Volume 2 just came out, right? Or is it out officially? It is officially out. Awesome. And I just got the first batch of books two, two days ago from the publisher. Mm-hmm. So the the first round of pre-orders are going out today. And this is, and this is uh, about which one? This covers uh, SPD, Site Planning oh. and Design. Awesome. Um Hold on, I'm going on Amazon right now. It's cheaper through me, Cormac. Okay. <laughs> A little hint there. All right. We'll talk after the show. Okay. 
the publishing side of that could be a whole different conversation of how Amazon runs its fee structure, but it's, I basically cut out all of Amazon's marketing fees. So it's cheaper to buy it through me. Yeah. Hey, Neil, real quick, I don't mean to cut Laura off, but uh, you and I are slacking. You know, we're sitting here in the midst of two published authors, and you and I are like, let's just go yell at people on our our lawns. (laughs) (laughs) Let them take over the world. (laughs) Absolutely. Go go right ahead. (laughs) Sorry, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, so it's, it's been fun. It's, it's definitely something that takes a lot of time, but it's been worth it because I hear stories like what you said, Cormac, about your coworker, or I have people email me thanking me for the sketches, even like in the midst of another book, just simply enjoying the content that goes out in the newsletter. And I think it's, it's really nice to have just an, an alternative way to study. I mean, this is something that is, is new to the study guide arena. Yeah. It's uh, it's, I hate to even consider the comparison because he's so much better at sketching than me, but it's like the, the chain of the ARE study information. Yeah. It's, it's all visual. Yeah. Great. Well, we're honored to have you on the podcast. Finally, it's, it's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. We've wanted to have you on several times over the last few years. And I think this is finally like a great, a great way to, to, to get you actually in here and then perfect timing with the release of your new book. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Gosh, we met what, two, two and a half years ago online and then, uh, Chicago or Atlanta at national. Definitely Atlanta. Yeah. I know it was definitely Atlanta. I can't, I don't think you guys came to Chicago. We did not. Yeah. No, I wish we would have gone to that one. That one was good. The convention location was kind of far away from the nightlife stuff. Oh really? Yeah, that that's that's kind of crappy. Cuz that was the great thing about Philly it was is that it was right in the heart of everything. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I'm somewhat skeptical about with Orlando. Um it all depends on if they're doing the big convention center that's kind of on the outskirts or if they're going to do one of the little small centers, you know, they've got, you know, a couple of different places in kind of, which is still a little bit from like the town, you know, the, the city core. So I'm a little, little, little worried about it, but yeah, I, I well, know we did, we did have a listener right into the show who's on the planning activity committee for that show. And they did say that there are tons and tons of tours that are being scheduled. So it sounds like they're really trying to quell those. Uh, yeah. And that's, and that's great. Cause I mean, Orlando usually goes down, you know, when everybody t- thinks about Florida and they think about Orlando, they only think about Disney and, you know, Universal, but they don't really think about the fact that, you know, Orlando's got some pretty cool things going on. Hmm. Well, you're the Florida guy. I don't know. I've never been there. I, yeah, I grew up uh, an hour and a half away from it. It seems like they've done uh, at least a handful of write-ups on the convention page about cool places to eat downtown and like historic walking tours in the downtown area or art based. And and, yeah, and winter park is uh, one of the suburbs of Orlando and it's fantastic. I mean, it's a a beautiful little town. So I I think it, I think people aren't going to be disappointed. And if they are, then they can just hop on a bus and go to Disney. Yeah. Well, and if, and if they are, they can make it up because next year is in New York. Oh, you're not supposed to say that. They've got to make the big announcement. I think they kind of did, didn't they? It's in New York. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. definitely definitely going to that one. 
Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, uh, speaking of spoilers, let's uh, move on to the millennial question. So what, Cormac, you, you sent us this video. Why don't you give us a little, uh, a little synopsis about what it is or why you sent it? A friend of mine had posted online, uh, Simon Sinek's, uh, um, he's a, a cultural anthropologist, but by education, but he's a public speaker, um, specifically on leadership. And one of the things in some of his many talks, he was asked the question by, you know, many different corporate leaders about the millennial question. And at the time, because, you know, I, I read a couple of, uh, and watched a couple of videos and read a couple of articles specifically about, he was like, well, you know, what do you mean by the um, millennial question? And, you know, they had posed the things and it's in this video that we're going to put in our show notes. And we do encourage everybody to, to watch it because it's, it's pretty amazing. They're like, well, you know, they're tough to manage. They're entitled, you know, self-interested, self-involved, blah, blah, blah. You know, so he was, he, he didn't have an answer at the time. And so he really pondered it, you know, he, he looked into the research, you know, he really did a very good job of, like, pulling in all of the background information and, you know, and then basically formulated an answer. So it got a lot of traction, you know, the millennial question about what do you do about the millennial question? Because so many times older generations, just, you know, typical throughout time, they say, you know, what are we going to do with these damn kids? They're lazy. They don't do anything, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and so now we're dealing with it in the form of the millennials. A lot of times they get a bad rap that they are lazy or they are entitled or they, you know, really are tough to manage. And I think it's because we're growing up in a, in a changing time where, you know, um, we are technology based. And so we aren't, you know, we're kind of like caught behind and I say we as just speaking for an older generation that really I'm not really a part of that generation. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle between, you know, millennial and baby boomers, the Gen Xers, which kind of really do kind of straddle that in both you know, their embrace of technology, but also kind of have a foot in, you know, how things were done. And um, and so, you know, he, he formulated this this uh, question and or formulated the answer to the question. And uh, we wanted to get Laura, who is a little bit younger, but m more specifically, we wanted her because she's really involved with the the rising stars of archi of architecture and the architectural profession, emerging professionals. And we really wanted to kind of have her take on why architecture, you know, why the, the youth and in, in specifically in architecture for our conversation, but get a bad rap when we, we sat here and we listened to all of the great things that Laura is doing. And, you know, there's, there are examples, you know, there's exceptions to the rule, but then there's, you know, these exemplary people who are not just sitting by and watching the profession, you know, pass them by while they complain about, well, you know, I just, they're never letting me get involved or I can never make a difference or I can never make an impact. No, they're grabbing it and going. And so that's why we wanted to, uh, that's what we want to talk about. And that's why we uh, brought Laura on board. Yeah, And I think just to kind of set the, the stage too, that I think that the main um, issues that are, are being presented in this piece all resolve, revolve around just the newer generation always speaks a different language than the previous generation or previous generations. Yeah. And so it's nothing new. And, and this is just this version of this 
issue that's coming up. And and to me, it's really coming down to the digital natives versus digital immigrants or the non-digital uh, people at all, right? These are these are all terms that have been come up with in the last I don't know decade, maybe maybe two at the most, since uh, technology really has started to permeate every piece of our lives. But I think that the the video really speaks to what we're now seeing as the potential dangers of that, and so that's where. That's where Simon kind of enters the scene and puts the narrative firmly in the the camp of now that we've had time to study this, right, because everybody is just kind of taking it on and, and living with it every day. And it's kind of like the, the food pyramid of the past where the whole FDA is is based on you know, the biggest part of the pyramid is grains. And now they're finding out that grains aren't so good for you. <laughs> it's kind of like that with technology, right? It's the same, same thing. So you're, you're, everybody's thrown into it. They're dealing with it every day. There's constant transformation happening. And now they're looking at, uh, since there's been enough time to study this, now they're, they're coming up with some outcomes that are not so favorable. And I think that's really where the foundation of this video is set because he, he talks a lot about that. Yeah, so, well, I mean, he he even mentions in it that there there's an aspect of moderation that just doesn't. It's harder to control with social media because mm-hmm. he compares it to gambling. He compares it to alcohol. Both of those things are fine. They can be fun, but you put too much of in yourself. It, yeah, like too much alcohol can kill you. Too much gambling can get you into some serious trouble. He brings up that moderation piece, which is just. From a from a technology side, it's harder to moderate, and I can't really speak to that because I don't have kids. I know how much I mess with my own phone, so I can't imagine <laughs> what it's. I can't imagine what it's like when you have when you come home from work at the end of the day, and you have a kid who like is just clinging to your ankle and wanting attention, and you know that you could just give them this device to give to take their attention, right? Well, I, I shared this story with. Um... Neil and Evan once, probably just a couple of weeks ago, we were out to dinner with our family and, you know, we make a conscious effort to make sure that we leave our phones, either we put them in my wife's purse or, you know, we leave them in the car because we want to have a conversation with the family. And so we were at this restaurant and, you know, they had like an indoor seating and, and outdoor seating. It was in a mall. So, you know, kind of like outdoor, but in kind of like the, the corridor of the, of the mall. And there's this girl walked up and it was her 18th birthday and all of her friends, you know, started coming up and there was 15 of them like clockwork. They would come up, they would kind of give her kind of like a little side kiss and do a little selfie and then sit down and immediately just start texting or whatever they were doing. So as the, this party went on, I look out there and the only person who's really not on their phone is the birthday girl. And so here's this poor 18 year old girl turning 18. You know, this is, it's this huge moment for her in in her life. I mean, 18 is a big thing. And all of her friends are on their phones, not talking to her, not engaging with her. And I just thought, I mean, how miserable is that really? Because you're here to celebrate somebody and you're ignoring them. Yeah. Just completely baffles me. I, I wanted to go back real quick because hopefully people, before they start listening to it, where they're going to start listening to it and they'll say, oh, well, they're talking about a video that I need to go back and take a look at. I, I just wanted to kind of touch on the points, and I, and I sort of did, but I wanted to touch on the points that what is the millennial question? 
what Simon says in the video is, wow, that's going to really annoy me. Simon says. Simon says. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's in the, the, like I said, corporate leadership comes up and they have this confounded thought about the younger generation. And so they basically kind of lay out what confounds them about the younger generation. And I said it a little bit earlier, but I just want to kind of point out, I, I wrote it down, it's just like, that they're tough to manage, that they're entitled, that they're self-interested, self-involved, never satisfied with their job, and lazy. So those are the negatives. Right. But then there's the positives, right? They, they want to work in a place of purpose. They want to do meaningful work. They want to make an impact. Right. Really, the millennial question isn't, well, here's our impression of them, and it's more negative, and here's their impression of themselves, and it's more of positive. It's, it's really that middle ground of how the you know how the generations can come together and really kind of solve how it is that one person can and because we want the new generation to come in and basically take over for us so we can move on move up and then ultimately retire it's just like you're looking at something you're just like i don't really want that person to take over for me because look at them they're lazy they're entitled they're you know blah 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 and then they're just like i really wish that this dinosaur would retire because he's in the way of me making a a place of purpose or making an impact. And so it's that meeting in the middle kind of thing that is the question. Agreed. Yep. Hey, Laura, I wanted to jump over and ask you, he talks about failed parenting strategies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you experienced this growing up, the whole part about participation medals and being the, always getting the award for something and that you always have this expectation. Maybe that's one of the reasons why many millennials feel entitled to something because they, they've always been given something for no matter what they do, whether they failed at it or not. So what's your perspective as somebody who grew up in that time? Is Does that make sense to you? Well, I mean, it's it's one of those where he he also says something about the environment is a huge piece. So the millennials are coming up into this based on their environment through no fault of their own into mm -hmm. these parenting strategies. Right. Which to me, when he immediately said that, I was like, oh heck, we're going to get a lot of backlash about this because no fault of their own is basically like they're getting off scot-free, which he goes on to explain, you know, that's not necessarily what he means. He means that people who grew up in the depression, like my grandfather did, grow up to be very miserly is not a a kind word, but he's very smart with his money. Um, yeah. Well, he pays attention, you know, but, right. but at the same, at the same time, he then had my dad who is a definite baby boomer. And so my dad grew up based on that parenting strategy of a parent who grew up in the depression and growing up, my dad got, I think he would say he would get like one or two pairs of tennis shoes a year. Mm -hmm. So he has like issues, but they were Yeezys, right? <laughs> I don't know what that is. $1,500 tennis shoes? No, definitely not. They were bobos. Secondhand stores and how can you sew on Lacoste logos onto <laughs> thrift t-shirts, you know? Uh. like. And so that's what he grew up in. And they, he talks about people who grew up in the Vietnam and Nixa era grow up to be more cynical because of the experience of their environment. My experience was that being on the older portion of this, like I was... Until the word millennial came along, I wouldn't necessarily have associated myself with it. I, I'm more associated with the generation once 
older. And I don't know if that's what, like Y or yeah, Gen Y. Yeah. Well, no, Gen Y and millennial are the same. Actually. Oh, so it's yeah. X. So I'm like the tail well, end of, because I grew up in households because of my dad's work ethic instilled in him by his dad. School was my job. And if I didn't do good at my job, I was in trouble. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to make sure that you get into honors classes because we think that you're amazing. It's you're going to work your butt off. And yeah. part of that might be because he's a, he was, before he retired, a higher level math teacher. But at the same time, there were incentives in place. So if I brought home all A's in high school, I got $50 at the end of the semester. Now, if I brought home four A's and a B, it immediately dropped down to like $25. And I was not someone who like got paid for chores. Chores were expected. So that was yeah. my, and I wasn't allowed to keep a job because school was my job and sports. And so that was like my main source of money outside of holidays or birthdays. But in, in when you were in sports, was it that kind of a scenario? I mean, sport, because you're on a team and it's a completely different set of maybe values or, or whatever from your parents, then then was that a different experience? Because that's really where we started to see everybody gets a trophy, right? You know, I don't, I think, so I started playing soccer when I was five. And my guess is that, you know, at that age, they do give everyone participation medals. Mm -hmm. um, even when that was like very new to the system. Um, but I think it's more because like, heck, we kept five-year-olds from not picking dandelions on the field. Like, we we want to reward them for something. Yeah. But I actually moved up pretty quickly in soccer, and it was much more competitive. So at that level, they don't reward you for being a slacker, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, and so perhaps those things, then the lack of them acted as carrots for me. I would say that that's probably a good motivator. Um for myself but it also helped me set good goals like okay if i want to reach this i need i need to be able to do x y and z um and when i started high school at speedway they didn't have a women's soccer team so i transitioned from playing at that time i think it was like uh travel a league or something to having to play on the men's soccer team um and so, you know, your goals and your benchmarks just jumped really quickly. So I had to work harder to even get field time, let alone some sort of medal at the end of the season. Um, so that's I'm probably not a. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're not you're not a typical. Well, I think just thinking about how people grow up now versus even then right now. Now, you know, I have a teenager and he has a cell phone. And if he were on a sports team, which he he was in the fall, he he had that phone in his pocket all the time. And so if he's on the bus going to another school to play a football game, I'm sure he's on the phone the whole time instead of talking with his buddies. And and I think that 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 wasn't the case back then. It is now. And I think even deeper than that, though, is it, it doesn't matter a hundred percent that kids are growing up with these devices and having them with them at all times because it's just as uh, effective with adults right we we all are oh, on yeah. our phones all the time and we see people that we work with on their phones all the time and right. so i don't think it matters necessarily whether we grow up with them or not it's it's the same addiction can happen no matter what the age is um as far as technology goes but i think that the things that you're talking about uh 
I guess like, I, I don't go ahead. Well, and I, I, I want to come back to that when we start getting into like what that looks like in a corporate environment, because there's a difference between being on your phone and screwing around and being on your phone doing work, depending on what your job is. Right. Sure. Yeah. But in terms of technology from how it's kind of so quickly embedded itself in our culture. Mm. I mean, I was a senior in high school. So, all right, Neil, you're going to feel really old. Um, That's okay. <laughs> He's used to it. He always does. <laughs> I I graduated high school in 2004. Sweet. What? <laughs> yeah, you're a millennial. Sorry. <laughs> um, my senior year, I, you know, I had friends as freshmen, sophomores that had cell phones. I did not get a cell phone until my senior year when I basically went out and started a plan and said that I was going to pay for it with my summer work money. Um, and my parents said, no, we'll, we'll use it to like get in touch with you if you need to. So I guess we'll pay for it. Um, but like I took it on expecting that I would shoulder that responsibility. And at that point it was like an old flip phone and it didn't cost that much for a plan. Um, the inverse being, you know, my sister, when she started driving, immediately got one, um, and she was two years younger than me. I think my younger brother, who's seven years younger than me, um, he got one when he was in junior high because it was, oh, it's easier to get in touch with him when he's riding the bus. And then yeah, I, I think my baby sister, uh, who is 12 years younger than me, got one even younger than him. Mm. So it, it very quickly crept in at younger ages. You know, and that it, that's interesting how you put that timeline together and you see kind of the evolution of technology. I mean, because we're talking about, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of the iPhone and that's really when the explosion happened. And you overlay that with your brothers and sisters and it very much is in line with the change in, you know, well, you know, it's, it's almost of, you know, the, the digital pacification, um, you know, people, parents, I, I do it rationalize, you know, why my, you know, middle schooler and high schooler have cell phones and, you know, it's just, oh, well, it's easier to get in touch with them. As you said, you know, get in touch with them on the bus. Well, how many times did your parents, you know, like email or text you or anything when you were on the um, the bus? Well, never, because one, it didn't exist when I was on the bus as a as a middle schooler. And they already knew that I was on the bus. You know, I'll be home soon. If I'm not, then, you know, I probably missed the bus or something. And they figured it out from there. And so it, it's it, it's interesting to, you know, how you you overlaid your timeline because you list, you see how it's all changed and it's now become, you know, we're, we're all learning this technology. I mean, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, our generation, the generation beyond us, you know, the generations to come, we're all learning how to deal with this technology as part of our life R right now, mostly unsuccessfully because we've kind of transplanted the technology and the pacification from technology um, as our social outlet rather than, you know, looking at somebody face to face. You know, I make this, you know, it's interesting because you're very Midwestern in your, um, your upbringing and so am I. Uh, 
I've got you know Michigander father who grew up and he he was all about the face to face contact and he was all about looking someone in the eye and really talking to him and Neil and Evan and I we 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 joke all the time about you know me being the luddite of the of the group where I actually make a point to go into the post office and buy stamps and talk to the person and not go to the machine and things like that I want to have you know I go into the bank to have the personal contact and stuff and it we've made it so much easier to detach ourselves and this right. is where I think we can kind of lead into you know maybe talking about it in the professional environment but you know we've made it so much easier to do the instant gratification of boom here's the information or hey um uh what is oh crap Suri's actually turning <laughs> you just you just did that for everybody who's listening to the podcast <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. mine just popped up on there i should have left it upstairs um but uh you know and it just automatically kind of pops in and tells you what you need to do and so you know i think it's it's kind of interesting that you know we're overlaying this evolution, you know, with the millennials and, you know, we're all still trying to learn how to deal with it. So I think it's, it it may be confounding the leadership, but I think it's because the leadership just doesn't know how to use it. Well, and I I will say you talked a little bit about like the Luddite form of face-to-face interaction and how technology is kind of taking that away and making people incapable of those conversations, or at least much harder to come by. Um, so from a, from a leadership perspective, I can imagine that trying to get younger generations comfortable with client meetings or, um, how to interact with consultants or reps or, you know, that from an architecture perspective, if you don't like face-to-face interaction as a person in general, that makes that step even harder. Or, or an owner, (laughs) right? (laughs) How do you get clients? Yeah. How many times do you, when you maybe say to, you know, a junior staff member, it's just like, hey, you, uh, can you contact um, the uh, your consultant or can uh, an engineer or something? How many times do you say that? And they say, well, I'll go ahead and email them. Yeah. I mean- <laughs> well, there's, so there's, um, that's, di- that's dicey, right? Because, um some of that is a CYA. I need right. it right now. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> so, it, you know, obviously if you have, like I've had clients before that are wonderful and contractors that are wonderful. And so outside of needing to like email him a sketch while he's in the field, I can have a phone conversation and know that he's not going to like, he's going to do what we talked about. Um, but you know, we all know that there are also those contractors or reps or, um, consultants that are, are very much in the CYA mindset. And so if you don't get it in writing, then they're going to say, well, we never had that conversation. Right. You know? So, um, but yeah, it is, it is a lot easier to email, but I think that also may be, that's where technology helps the inexperienced, right? Because I will tell you right now, like I still hate calling reps because I'm still learning about specifying stuff. I'm still learning about how details work. I got my license really quickly, which means I don't have the wealth of experience that you do, Cormac. So those are things that I'm still learning and being able to like compose my thought in an email and do research before I call them 
and it's a kind of level live interaction. Field, right? Yeah. So, so there's positives and negatives. Well, we're seeing that everywhere too. I mean, that's really what the technology is doing is leveling the playing field for everybody. So everybody can be a publisher. Everybody can put their work out there. Uh, there we don't have the big gatekeepers anymore. Yeah. Which has its positives and negatives, right? Because then right. that also means that you have clients who think that they can Google how to fix something and right. think they know more than you. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's a that's a completely different. Maybe that's the the next topic we talk about when we have you on is a because that's a completely different conversation about how um, everybody is now an architect because they're able to Google something and say, well, you know, this is Google says this, and you're like, well, but that's not how it works in practice. But well, like I said, I don't want to get going on that one. All right, so let's take a second out of the show to talk about our sponsor, and we all know that that is RCAT because RCAT has been a great sponsor of this show. We all are pretty busy, and sometimes we feel like we could use another hand to help out. Would you like someone to draw CAD details for you? Seriously? Would you? Yes. Create BIM objects? (laughs) Write specs? Yeah. How would you like all of that for free? That's a serious ask from RCAT. That is pretty awesome that they're willing to help us do our daily jobs like that. So everybody go over to RCAT.com because RCAT is the answer and they have already done all of this work for you. You can search the RCAT libraries for CAD, BIM, specs, catalogs, videos, and more. And all this content is created for you for free. And you don't even have to register to download this stuff. You can stop registering on sites for content. Just go to RCAT and find what you need. RCAT has created the website that is devoted to you, the building professional, to find product information fast and hassle-free. Check out RCAT today at ARCAT.com. And don't forget to provide feedback on their website. There is a button on the right side of every page. If you have a suggestion to make RCAT better, go ahead and click that feedback button and tell them that ArcaSpeak sent you. So thanks, RCAT, for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. And let's jump back into the conversation. I would like, maybe maybe we can go down the avenue a little bit further of what Laura started here with. How does this represent itself in the profession of architecture? Because one of the main points of his breakdown uh, in his technology section is is that kids aren't creating deep, meaningful relationships at yes. an early age. Yeah. And and so how does that come up again in the profession, right? Which is what we started to talk about here with the email and things like that. I think that there's we could go way deeper into that part of it because when you're talking to clients, it doesn't – we know that the rainmakers in the large offices are people who have personal relationships with clients, and they have for a long time. And so right. how does that change in the future if if those personal relationships are not already in place? Because people don't have personal relationships in person, they've got them uh, via technology. I mean, how do, how do you guys kind of see that playing out? From what I've seen so far, those those people who become, you know, quote-unquote rainmakers, the business development people, mm-hmm. um, will continue to be the people that have the personal relationships. Like, part of, at Ratio, part of moving up in leadership is that you are bringing in work. You have right. those connections. Yep, and you're responsible to do that. I mean, that is that is a job, that's a bullet point on your responsibilities, right? Correct, yeah. So And so you don't get to those positions without being in your community right? and living into that, which you should be doing 
anyways, right? So what like, if as so in the future is is your community online? I guess is my point. Like like will we just adjust to how things are now and continue down this path? Or will an adjustment be made to go more to a personal connection type, which was the previous way to, to do it? Or is it a mix of both? I don't, I don't know. Well, think about this. Well, I was going to say, well, think about this, though. We all know each other first from online. Mm-hmm. Now we all know each other face to face. We hang out. We've hung out together on numerous occasions. We've, you know, we get together when we're in, you know, the same towns and we're doing, you know, some of the same events and things like that. Laura and bought us cr- donuts. Yes. Laura bought us donuts. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've, we've created those meaningful relationships that started on social media but then took it into the realm of, well, let's call it the physical reality of things. And so that is where you're going to see there's going to, there will be people who are going to be more comfortable just kind of hiding behind the screen. And then there are going to be those people, the business development, the rainmakers that are going to be able to bridge the gap between the digital social media world and physical environment of shaking people's hands and networking and, and getting out there. Um, you know, I mean, Laura, you're doing it. That, that's kind of, again, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on here and talk about that, because you are bridging the gap between the old timers and the, the way things used to be and, and kind of like embracing all of the new technology, but understanding that you're able to push past all of that and make more meaningful relationships. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if, um, so after grad school, at that point, Facebook had been around for, at least in the Midwest, Facebook had been popular for like five years. Um, And I was in a position then where I was moving around the country. So I was able to use those social technologies to keep in touch with people. And as we continued to move, like that was my way to maintain meaningful relationships, you know? Um, whereas the inverse now is that young people start at the social level and are having a hard time getting back to the meaningful relationship. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think something that maybe we could talk a little bit about too, is just, I think like Laura, I see a value in using that network to bring more value to my firm. And, and so because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a digital immigrant, you know, I'm, I've, I wasn't, I didn't grow up with this, these things in my hands all the time. I mean, we, we, it was a long, slow transition. Uh, I fully embrace it. And everybody in my office knows that I fully embrace it. Mm. And if I want to be the person when you, because now the way that you find out information is through the Google, right? So if you Google my name, I want to be in control of what comes up. And I definitely don't want to be the person where nothing comes up. But there's a lot of people in our offices who have been there for a long time where nothing comes up. And so that to me is like obsolescence in the future, right? Or now. Um, and so I'm using that as a tool to bring value to my office. I mean, Neil, you have 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. And I don't know if you use that tool uh, to bring value to your office, but you definitely could. Right. That this is one of those things where there there is some value to this community that you've been a part of and helped build over the years digitally. Yeah. Well, and I mean, from a 
from a leadership attracting and trying to retain young professionals, you better believe that's what they're looking for when they interview with you. Absolutely. They need to see a digital footprint because you're right. Like if you aren't in the webosphere, you know, you're, Mm -hmm. are you obsolete? Like, are you still, what does that speak to in technology in the office? Like, are you still using line drawing CAD? Are you still drafting and blueprinting by hand? You know, like if you're not keeping up with certain pieces of technology, what does it say about the rest of the ideas behind your business? Yeah. Yeah. And and if you really are a piece of that business, you, you are representing it. So if, if no one's doing that, then I, I think that you've got a problem. Well, and the expectations of clients are changing as well. I mean, now... You know, they do want, much like everybody else, they do want the instantaneous answer, the quick fix of like, are they listening to me? Are they paying attention? Do they have, you know, my best interest in mind? And so they're expecting something. And if you're a firm who can't deliver that, you're not going to be their firm much longer. So you're going to, you have to be able to kind of keep pace with the expectations that your clients have. Yeah. And so to me, like getting back to the millennial question, I think these are all questions that, or I, I guess issues that, that firms are dealing with. And to me, the, the people who are going to be able to answer these questions are the millennials. They're the ones yeah. who are going to be able to bring the firms into the next era. And, and I think the main issue here is there's a lot of problems with what millennials want to do. They want to do meaningful work. How do you start in a corporate environment doing meaningful work from the get-go? Right? Because what, what do they have to offer the firm? It's a completely different set of skills than what they ultimately want to be doing. Right? If, if they're good at technology, but they don't want to be relegated to just doing that kind of work. Like, they want to know. do meaningful work. Oh, you so, know Photoshop? How, so how does this work? Yeah. It's like the, oh, you know Photoshop, let me throw you into doing... You're the graphic secretary. You know, graphic, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, your question leads into you know another point that he brought up. And so before I bring up the point, I think that mentorship you know early on is a huge key factor to being able to not only understand the new generation, but also be able to embrace them and use that understanding as a way to shape and change the way the firm works, not just kind of on a selfish realm of being able to maintain and retain um, employees, but also being able to capture, you know, new work and new clients. Well, I think this Um, is probably something that Laura's really good at i mean it's it's pretty obvious that she is but and maybe you can speak to this laura but i think that the the people who are going to usher the profession of architecture into its next iteration are the ones who understand that we both need each other and yeah. so you've got the millennials who are coming into the offices who have to have respect for the people who have been there to teach them what it takes to run a profitable profession or a practice. And then you've got the establishment who needs to respect the millennials and what they bring to the table. And it's got to be give and take. It's got to be both ways. But I think both, uh, you know, speaking in generalities, both eras of people have this chip on their shoulder. Right. And that is not allowing them to have that mutual respect. 
Yeah. So that leads into one of his points that he brought up about impatience and how um, if you're coming in uh, and with this mutual respect that you're talking about, Evan, they also need to understand that, as he kind of brings up, you're not going to change the world in eight months because you need to learn to navigate the waters. You need to at least have the time to stop and appreciate what's become, you know, come before you and understand and utilize that experience, utilize those tools that are there that, you know, I mean, a lot of times architecture isn't reinventing the wheel, but the business of architecture is. So it's, it's constantly it's, changing. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to. It, exactly. <laughs> Again, I would say this is another point where that people have to understand uh, and, and people firmly entrenched in their beliefs of the past are not going to, is that if things aren't changing, uh, then then your business is not long for this world, right? You have to be current, if not trying to stay ahead of the curve. And how are you going to do that? You have to embrace it. You have to constantly be looking for that thing that that is coming. And that, to me, is what the millennial generation offers. Exactly. Well, and the ability to embrace that just shows good leadership in general, right? That's true. Yeah, it, because you the the job of leadership is to find the replacement. I think you talked a little bit about that earlier, Cormac. And and if you're not, if you're firmly entrenched in this is how things need to be and this is how they need to stay and this is how, you know, I need to protect my position because if I can't protect it, then I don't feel safe. Right. Um, then then you're if you're not constantly looking for how to raise up those people that are coming in, then you are not being a leader. Mm-hmm. So the the instant gratification piece, uh, I just want to say before we get into that, like, the this actual portion of the talk that you're linking to in the um, show notes was part of a hour plus long talk yeah. that he that he had with those people, and the entire talk is worth listening to. Like you oh. don't necessarily you don't necessarily need to watch it, but just play it in the background like a podcast, right? right. Um, because he talks a lot about the difference between what a leader is and what a person of rank is, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's that's where that leadership embracing versus rank showing authority kind of comes into play. Um, and, but so that, so it's just, that's worth listening to, but the, the instant gratification piece is definitely something that millennials deal with a lot because they're used to technology continually getting faster. So why isn't their life? Yeah. I, I don't know how, I don't know how outside of experience to get younger generations to understand that it doesn't work that way. I myself am very impatient. Like my family will tell you that my friends will tell you that. Um, but what I've learned to do is to set better goals and turn it back on me and figure out how I can improve or if there's something I can do to speed it up, not expect other people to do something for me. Can you give an example of what you're talking about? Um, well, I mean, the, my, my work within the AIA as a whole, uh, so I'm now, as of, you know, January 1, 2017, I am the AIA Indianapolis secretary. I didn't join the AIA until not even three years ago, like officially joined the AIA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just immediately started going to meetings and trying to be helpful 
And when I saw stuff that I didn't like or I felt like stuff wasn't happening, I volunteered my time instead of sat and complained about it and said, why aren't we moving faster? Mm -hmm. You know, like, why aren't we doing X, Y, or Z? I gave my time to make sure that we could do X, Y, or Z. Um, So I don't know if that's like a, that's, that's like the first example that I can think of. There's obviously other professional examples, but that goes back to, you know, kind of the comment that was made about finding, you know, making a place of purpose. So rather than, you know, you sitting back and just letting the profession happen to you, you were like, well, you know, I see things that are right, things that are wrong. And you're pushed, you decided to push forward, you decided to get involved and actually be a part of it. And a lot of times, the impatience factor of things. I don't don't think, I don't necessarily think that is impatience that, that is looking for the purpose, looking for the impact. Whereas, you know, the impatience is, is, oh God, I can't believe that, you know, I've got to sit here and surf through this. Why can't I just do a web search and whatever first thing pops up, that's what I'm going to do. And not really going through the time of understanding whether or not that's right or wrong for your project or your client or what you're doing at that particular that point and and so you're somewhat disconnecting yourself from the experience of learning from the past or le- or doing the research and things like that to really kind of do it you're just you're trying to find the quick fix you're trying to get from point A to point B as fast as possible and not really paying attention to the route Mm-hmm. And you are, on the other hand, especially with getting involved with the AIA, are looking at the route and understanding that the route may be long. You know, sure, it's only been you know three years since you kind of dug into AIA and really kind of get involved with them. But you're looking that I understand what my end goal is. My end goal is is to just make the profession better, and yeah. I, I'm going to jump on the ride and take the route, whatever it is, and just play it by ear as it comes. So I don't necessarily know if that's a, sorry, I don't mean to, I don't think that was a good example of impatience because you are, you are accepting of, of the ride. Yeah. Well, I, okay. So when I joined ratio in June, June, yeah, almost two years, June of 2015, um, we had a handful of, um, we had a handful of social media channels active. Um, our website was good. Like it had won a national award. I think our marketing team did, but, um, but there were other pieces that from my background of like interacting with you guys and seeing what social networks could do for yourself and a company. Um, there were other pieces that I was, I was hopeful that we could, um, that we could Im- embrace. And our um, digital marketing manager is actually, I think, like two years younger than me um, at the firm, which is funny. But um, he's fantastic at what he does, but it, he, there's only one of him. So when I joined Ratio, he and I started having lots of conversations about, well, why aren't we doing this? And I, w- I was constantly like hitting my head against the, the glass wall of okay, so what's keeping us from doing this? And really what it was, was time, but I was still being very impatient with it. It's time and resources. And, um, so I'm sure he got 
annoyed with me because I would constantly be sending, <laughs> I would constantly be sending him articles of, look, we can be doing this better. Like, have we considered this? Can we, can we do this? Um, this is what is showing as working well right now. This is what the new trends appear to be. Can we start integrating this? And um, full well realizing that, you know, he is one person and I'm technically not allowed, like, I don't have billable hours set aside to be able to help him. Um, and, but I wanted to be there to help him in any way I could. So I just kept sending him resources and hoping that at some point, like something would stick to the wall. Um, and so because of that impatience and because of that persistence at the review time of restructuring who helps with what, like I now have eight hours a week to take on the social stuff. So I'm lightening his load by taking some of it on myself because I was impatient about it. But at the same time, there's now like the, the top down impatience of, okay, so what does, what's the, what's the return on this? So I had to go into it and kind of steady their expectations of how quickly they would see a return in value. Um, because when you get started in some of this stuff, like you guys know this, it takes 18 months, two years for a brand's name to be recognizable online, um, at least at least from any substantial way. Um, so so it's so who <laughs> who wants the instant gratification there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so I guess in some ways, the instant gratification can definitely be a hindrance because it makes you impatient and if you don't push at it well you just come off as an impatient young jerk who um doesn't who always wants more i think i think it's funny that the things that you're talking about there are uh, just how business is done nowadays and those are relics of the past where when you say i don't have billable hours in the day to do that kind of work uh, mm -hmm. To do the kind of work that makes a business relevant in today's age is <laughs> yeah. interesting to me. It's like saying that we don't have hours in the day to do mentoring. Right, right, right. Exactly. Just just replace those two things. I mean, it's so interesting that the development of our marketing strategy, the development of our people are not things that are billable. Uh, they're, they're looked at as outside outsider type of things because they're not billable is how I guess I should say that. And because everything is based on getting more efficient with our time and uh, making more of a financial impact in the firm. And so to me, that's all about short-term gains. And and nobody's looking at that as far as like what the long-term effects of those things are. And that to me is extremely frustrating. And those are relics of the past and and they're not... Uh, they're firmly entrenched, I guess I should say, because there's a lot of firms that operate like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and and Simon even mentions it in the discussion that that a lot of corporate locations look at those short term gains versus the long term impact of investing in the employee, yeah. and that's right. and that's the disconnect between younger generations and uh, leadership or people of management. Maybe we can wrap up and just talk a little bit about the kind of outcome of, of and to me, this was an unexpected outcome of his talk, because I, I, initially when I started watching it, I thought it was just kind of a presentation of the problem, 
but he clearly laid out kind of the path of why the problem exists and then things that can be done about it. But to me, the kind of the big um, aha moment of the video was when he says we have a complete lack in corporate leadership of how to deal with this. Um, we don't know how to deal with the kids. We don't know how to help them overcome the needs of instant gratification. And so what he says is basically you have this complete lack of corporate leadership. And the truth of the matter is that it is on them to work extra hard to teach kids how to connect. And so right. the, the like like we talked a little bit earlier about having this mutual respect. But what he's really saying, is, and because you can already hear the older era of people saying, well, yeah, it's on, it's on them to approach me and, and ask me to mentor them. Uh, actually it's not, <laughs> it's on you to show your leadership and help make this happen so that the transition can be as smooth as possible and work extra hard to make that happen. Yeah. And I think that was unexpected. I think that he, I didn't think he was going to go there and I was actually pleasantly surprised that he did because this is the, this is the outlook that I have. I mean, I have to build the bridge is how I look at it. Yeah. And to me, that is a quality of leadership. It is inconvenient. Leadership is inconvenient. And you have to do the hard work to make it happen. Yep. The primary responsibility of leaders is to build other leaders. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, there's a classic graphic of um, what leadership is. And I'll look it up and see if I can find it for the show notes. But it basically what, um, you know, because we, we've talked previously about the difference between leadership and management. But most people think leadership is the leader being uh, carried by all the people in a chair as they point in the direction that they want to go. <laughs> and yeah. the true diagram of leadership is the leader in the front pulling everybody along, doing the work, right? That's basically what it's showing. It's doing the work of pulling everybody on a sled behind them and saying, we're going to go this direction and I'm going to do the work to get us to, to lead us there. Uh, and, and it's not me pointing saying, take me there. It's me pulling. Uh, and I, I've always liked that graphic as, as a, a diagram of what leadership could and should be. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely on leaders, but I don't want to take the responsibility off of the young generation either. Yeah, mutual, mutual, mutual. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because as much as they can lead you, if you are, you know, putting your, digging your heels into the ground and expecting them to carry you on that sled, then you're not going to, like, your career is not going to go anywhere either. Right. So. Yeah, the, the biggest thing I always say every time, you know, I'm in a uh, position of mentoring is, is remember, you make your own career. You're the one who guides it. You're the one who directs it. You have people out there that are helping you to be able to guide you, use their experience, use their knowledge, but you're the one who shapes your career. Yeah, they're not going to do it for you, right? Yeah. Yeah, good point. All right. Well, that, that was a kind of a, a period at the end of the sentence there, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Laura, very much for uh, joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I feel like this is a conversation that could just continue to go on, but yeah, <laughs> it can, it certainly can, and, and and hopefully will. You know, uh, hopefully people uh, listening to the show um, join us online, either on Facebook or on uh, Twitter, and um, keep the conversation going. Tell us what you guys think uh, leadership is. Tell us, you know, your experience with the millennial question. Yeah, uh, we'd definitely. really like to hear it. 
So, so Laura, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to and your new volume two of ARE sketches, all that stuff? Where, where do you want to send people? Uh, so Twitter and Instagram are both L2, like numeral two design LLC. Um, and you can see, you can follow me there. The sketches get posted there. Um, but the actual books are for sale at my website, which is um, www.l-2-design.com. Um, and that's obviously where all the blog uh, stuff happens and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and we've, through Architalks, uh, we've done, you know, some mentorship posts and stuff like that, which obviously starts to get into the millennial question, too. But yeah, those are those are the main sources. Uh, there's Facebook as well, uh, but you can find pretty much all of those connections either from Twitter or the website. Thanks again very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it, and uh, we hope to have you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, RCAT. Make sure you check out everything that they offer, all the specs, all the details, and everything that you can sign up for free as Evan mentioned earlier, at rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. And we really thank them for their continued support of ArcaSpeak. And for all the catalog of episodes, please visit our website at arcaspeakpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter that will include links to all the different things and including the videos that we talked about in this episode. And then between the episodes, please let us know what you think by joining that conversation and continuing it over on Twitter or on Facebook. All the links for those can be found, again, at the main site, arcaspeakpodcast.com. We thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. You can start now, or you can hang your head in despair. The only road will take you there. They may tell you that you'll never recover, baby. I'm
A crappy actor, a mother of pearl And if they don't know how to hold a woman Maybe you can put them back in their place They could use a little bit of discipline And a hand across their face Baby, let's pretend we're doing Day. Some like to hug, some leave a bro, some soft mixed up 